evening, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if I could invite you to grab your Bibles and find your way to Judges chapter 16, that would be great. Our ordinary practice in the life of our church is to walk through books of the Bible and to uh, stroll through them together. And so we're going to continue our journey through the book of Judges, found in Judges chapter 16. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, know that we have some provided on the table in the back for you to grab. If you do not own a Bible, let that be our gift to you. Take that home with you. And uh, so that you might dive into the scriptures uh, at your own time and in your own place. Judges chapter 16. Uh, there was a, there's a rather intense film called Dorian Gray. And it's after, it was made after an uh, Oscar Wilde novel that he published back in 1890. And it's kind of a strange, rather intense, somewhat of a gory film. And the character, Dorian Gray, the lead character, is a young uh, portrait of him. And uh, Basil painted this youthful portrait that he really enjoyed. And after seeing the painting, he, he actually voiced a prayer. And he prayed that he would not grow older, but that the picture of him would. And as time passes, he found that his prayer was answered, as the, the picture would change over time, but he himself remained young. However, the portrait in the painting, not only did it, rem- that did it grow old, but it also became more unsightly as it began to reflect the, the type of character that this man was. It began to reflect, uh, it began to get a little more disfigured with every sin he committed. Well, 20 years after the painting was, was made, uh, Gray shows the portrait to Basil. It was the first time Basil had seen it since he made it 20 years prior. And upon seeing the painting, this is what Basil says. He cried out, this is monstrous. Beyond nature, beyond reason, what does it mean? And Gray took the moment to explain that what he had prayed and that his prayer had been answered. He stayed young while his portrait grew older, but as his portrait grew older, it also became more disfigured as a result of the sin in his life. And so Basil replied, if this is true, if this is what you have done with your life, it is far worse than anything that's been said of you. Do you know how to pray, Dorian? What was it we were taught to say in our boyhood? Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us of our sins. Wash away our iniquities. Let's say those prayers together. What Dorian lamented said it's too late, Basil. But Basil assured him. He said the prayer of your pride was answered. And the prayer of your repentance may be answered also. But Dorian did not Uh, believe Basil. Instead, he got mad, and in a fit of rage, he actually murdered his friend. And the film would go on, and Dorian would grow in his self-hatred, eventually getting to the point where he walked up to the portrait of himself, and he grabbed a knife, and he stabbed it in the heart. However, when he stabbed the portrait in the heart, he discovered that he actually stabbed himself. And so he fell before the portrait. Not long afterwards, his friends entered the room, and When they walked in, they saw an immaculate picture of a youthful Dorian, but they saw a monstrous man dead on the floor. And so at the end of the film, viewers are just shocked and kind of surprised, and there's one prevailing question that kind of comes out of that moment, and the question is, did Dorian die as a monster, or did Dorian die as a new man? Did he die a monster, or did he die a new man? Well, this same question can be asked of Samson in Judges chapter 16. The same question may be asked of him tonight because in Judges chapter 16, uh, this passage tells us about Samson's death. And given all the things that we learned about Samson last week, just what a corrupt character he was, how flawed he was as a man, we 
are left to wonder, is he going to die a monster or is he going to die a new man? You see, in chapters 14 and 15, Samson uh, was reflected to be a deeply flawed character. Nevertheless, time and time again, we saw God empowering him. We saw God blessing him. We even saw at the end of 15, God providing water for Samson just when he was on the brink of death. But what's interesting about this dynamic is that God's grace towards Samson, his blessing of Samson, didn't seem to change him. It doesn't seem to change him. Rather than growing into a godly man, Samson continues to spiral downward. In many ways, Samson is a lot like the people of Israel all throughout the book of Judges. He reflects the state of Israel back in that day. And so in chapter 16, when you get into this portion, you find this last stretch of his story dealing with his death. It seems that Samson is now in a tailspin, a tailspin that will be impossible, it seems, for him to come back from. It seems like he's going to die a monster. For example, notice how the chapter begins in verse 1 of, of Judges 16. There we read, Samson went, that's the same way his story began in chapter 14, verse 1. If you remember, he went into Philistine territory. He saw a young Philistine woman and he wanted to be with her. So after everything that happened in chapters 14 and 15, you get to chapter 16 and Samson is still where he started. He hasn't grown at all. He hasn't changed one bit. He's still morally weak. He's still spiritually corrupted. But then you keep reading in verse 2 and you find that Samson is still blessed by God with incredible strength. Notice verse 2. It says, when the Gazites heard that Samson was there, that, that was, they were looking for Samson. He was public enemy number one. He was top on their hit list. They wanted to get this guy. And when they learned that he was in their town, they surrounded the place and waited in ambush for him all that night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night saying, let's wait until dawn, then we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate along with the two gate posts and pulled them out, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and took them to the top of the mountain overlooking Hebron. Now this was quite a feat. This guy gets up, he rips up the gates of the city and he carries them on his back 40 miles to this place called Hebron. He, he's clearly still physically gifted. He's still physically strong. So you were introduced to Samson in chapter 16 as the same guy we met earlier, a morally weak man, but a physically strong man, someone who was still gifted by God, but someone whose character was far from godly. It seems that the more grace God bestowed upon Samson, the more blessing he would give Samson in seeing him through all these situations that he would put himself and it doesn't seem that he becomes more godly. It seems he becomes less so. His behavior becomes more reckless. Now, we want to think about that for a moment because we know that adversity and suffering can be hard on us spiritually. We know that when we face adversity and suffering in this world, as we journey through this world, that that can take its toll on the soul. It can affect us in some negative ways. But it is true that prosperity and blessing may be even harder on the human soul. Prosperity and blessing may be even harder on us than adversity and suffering. This is why a guy by the name of John Flavel back in the day would say, our outward gains, that is our external successes, our external blessings, our outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses. 
Meaning when we find ourselves blessed by God or gifted by God, sometimes that can lead us to becoming self-sufficient, that can lead us to becoming independent, that can lead us away from God reliance, away from God awareness, away from a God-honoring humility. It can produce the exact opposite. Our outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses, but the opposite of that may also be true. This means that our inward gains, that is, when our character begins to change and we find ourselves becoming more humble, we find ourselves becoming more grateful, we find ourselves becoming more dependent, usually those inward gains are ordinarily attended to outward losses. A lot of times it is adversity and affliction, it is struggle and strain in a fallen world that forges that character within us as we follow Jesus. This is why in James chapter One, the writer of that letter, James, would say this. He would declare, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why would he say that? Well, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, up to this point in Samson's life, he's only experienced prosperity. He's only experienced blessing. He's only experienced the upside of God's activity in his life. But what you're going to find in chapter 16 is that begins to change. And God begins to work in and through Samson's life in a different way. And and this is when you begin to see him beginning to change. So you have this Samson whose behavior hasn't changed, who's still a corrupt guy who's self-indulging, who's doing, living according to what he sees, what he perceives to be right and true, what he desires, that's what he's going after. And, and God's grace toward him hasn't changed him. And ultimately, this leads to him becoming somewhat deceived. He becomes deceived when you pick up reading in verse four. Listen to, what's, uh, listen to what we read. It says, sometime later, after that event, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah. Now, Delilah's name means a woman of the night. She was uh, not of high, upstanding, godly character. She was a lady of the night, and yet Samson saw her, and he fell in love with her. And it says that she lived in the Sorek Valley. This is Philistine territory. And the Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up, and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And then at that point, beginning of verse 6, you begin to find an exchange where Delilah, three exchanges there that are quite similar to what they have hired her to do. And you have three exchanges there that are quite similar in kind of their their process. Notice verse 6. It says, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me, where does your great strength come? With seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become weak and be like any other man. The Philistine leaders brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him up with them. While the men in ambush were waiting in her room, she called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. But he snapped the bowstrings, and a strand of yarn snaps, uh, as a strand of yarn snaps when it touches fire. The secret of his strength remained unknown. And so the pattern you see here happening about three times in a row is that, is that he's He tells Deborah something that will make him weak. She follows through with it. She believes him, and the Philistines wait in ambush of him, and then Samson escapes. It happens in the next portion where new ropes are used. It happens in the portion after that where where they weave seven braids into his hair. Deborah believes, Philistines wait, Samson escapes. But then you get to chapter verse 15, 
and things begin to change. Notice what happens beginning in verse 15. She comes to him at this point and says, how can you say I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth. So she nagged him in a way very similar to the woman he married in chapter 14. So apparently he was weak when it comes to being nagged because eventually he breaks and he caves. He gives in to her and listen to what he says. My hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent his message, this message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless, and his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. And here's the kicker. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Here we begin to see something about Samson being his, and his being self-deceived. And there's actually a lot of self-deception going on in this exchange because it's not just Samson who's deceived in this moment. The Philistines themselves were deceived as well. They were deceived in a way that many of our hearts tend to be deceived when it comes to how we approach a relationship with God. The Philistines approached God in relationship thinking that God's blessings and that God's power, that God's gifts were attainable if we could just employ the right formula or the technique. In other words, the Philistines approached God in a magical capacity. That, his, that Samson's strength must have been the result of magic in his life. And so they wanted to figure out, okay, what, what are the external conditions that need to be met that account for your strength? And then how can we meet those external conditions with the exact manipulation? How can we get things precisely right so that you are weakened, so that you lose God's blessing, so that you lose God's strength? And you know this is how magic works, right? You've read Harry Potter. You know that, that magic formulas and potions, they require extreme precision. This is why when Hermione uh, mixed the polyjuice potion trying to become another character, she didn't get it, get it quite right, and she turned into a cat. It wasn't very exact. It wasn't very precise. Well, here you have a moment where we discover something about the human heart and how we may be deceived. There are many people who approach God's blessings and who approach God's gifts in a formulaic capacity, believing that relationship with God is dependent upon magic. And we get this assumption that if I say the right thing to God, or if I do the right thing for God, then he will bless me in this way, he will bless me in that way. And we look all our lives for the proper variables to plug into the equation. And if we can get the right variables that will lead to the equation that we want, and that is God's blessing, that is God's gifts, that is God's strength, that is God's power. But what you're going to discover in the story of Samson and ultimately what you're going to find in the gospel is that God isn't to be manipulated by anyone. God doesn't respond to magic. He doesn't respond to a formula because God is a God of grace. And as a God of grace, he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. There are no variables that we plug into an equation to guarantee a certain outcome from God's activity in our lives. So we don't want our hearts to be deceived in thinking that our relationship with God is somehow dependent upon what we do and how well we do it. That it's somehow dependent upon 
plugging in the right spiritual variables so we can get the right guaranteed outcome. That's not how God's grace works. But not only do you see a deception there as it relates to the Philistines, you most notably notice Samson's self-deceit. Because at this point in his life, Samson believes that his strength is his by right. He feels entitled to the gift of God in his life, so much so that he doesn't believe he can lose it. He's convinced that he will never lose his strength. He believes his strength is his own. Notice verse 20 again. Pay attention to the first person pronouns listed there. He said, I will, I will escape as I did before. There's no credit being given to God. There's no recognition of God's grace in his life. He's saying, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. So this is a man who believes he's entitled to the gifts of God in his life. He believes that God's blessing upon him as it relates to his strength will always be there regardless of what he is like and how he refuses to change. But what he doesn't know there at the end of verse 20 is that something has changed. That God has changed in his relationship to Samson. It says that, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. And that phrase, the Lord had left him, it's a phrase that speaks to God's favor. He did not know that God's blessing was no longer upon him. And you get to this point where in the next portion, you're going to see Samson undergoing some intense discipline. You're going to see him failing. You're going to see him being opposed. He's going to step into adversity. He's going to step into some incredible, incredible affliction. I read a story this past week about a bakery and pastry shop owner over in um, Johannesburg. And the owner of this shop was frustrated because all the employees he would hire, they would come in and they would eat the cakes and they would eat the pastries. They would take from the shop without paying for them. They were, they were thieving from the store that they were working at. And so he was racking his brain trying to figure out, how can I change that about my employees? And what he decided to do is quite ingenious so that he decided that from now on, whenever I hire a new employee, I'm going to tell them, look, everything in here is yours. You can have whatever you want. And so these employees received that license, and they stepped in, and they took advantage of it. They begin to eat all the cakes and all the pastries. They begin to stuff their mouths with all the things that they desired in the store until, so, until all of them got sick. And they got to the point where they hated the pastries, they hated the sweets, and they didn't eat any more. And what was happening in that moment was he was giving them what they wanted, believing that ultimately they would get sick of it. You see, one of the ways that we want to think about God's discipline, one of the ways that we want to think about God's judgment in our lives, is that God's judgment and God's discipline in our lives often looks like that. It often looks like God giving us over to our desires, that God's judgment and discipline is often what we do to ourselves. It's when God says, look, you want to go after that? Fine, go after that. This is what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal sons where you have the young son come to his father and says, Dad, would you give me my share of the inheritance? And the father granted the son's request. The son wanted to live as though his father died. He wanted to live as if his father did not exist. And the father essentially said to him, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. So he gave him his share of the inheritance. And we're told in Luke 15 that the son then took all that was given to him, went to the far country, and squandered it all in reckless living. So much so that the young son found himself at one point eating in a pigsty, which was the equivalent of hell on earth for a young Jewish man like him. And in that moment, you see a picture of judgment. You see a picture of discipline. 
where oftentimes judgment and discipline from God occurs and it arises in our lives when, by way of the things we do to ourselves, by way of the things that we inflict upon ourselves by chasing desires that are ungodly, by living and doing according to what we see and what we think is right, just filling our lives with whatever it is we want, going about life the same way Samson had been going up to, about life up till now. Well, here when you get to verse 21, things begin to change. The Lord has left him. He's about to be disciplined. And eventually he begins to self-destruct. Notice what happens in verse 21. We're told that the Philistines seized Samson and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he, forced, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison, but his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. Now, there's a lot of irony in this moment. There's a lot of irony if you're familiar with Samson's story, because all of a sudden, the one who only did what was right in his own eyes is now blind and he can't see. His physical blindness now matches his spiritual and moral blindness that has characterized him up all his life. It's ironic that this strong man is now bound And it is ironic that this one who in chapter 14 burned grain, who burned all kinds of grain against the Philistines, he's now grinding grain for them. And that's a surprising moment because what you're going to see here in the next portion is that there's a a God that the Philistines worship known as Dagon. And Dagon is the wheat God. He was in charge of the grain. And so all of a sudden you find Samson basically serving at his altar. He's serving at the altar of this non-God that everyone else was worshiping. He's become a slave. He is self-destructing in this moment. And there's a whole lot of things that can be said about this dynamic. When you get into the New Testament, you understand that this is the way the New Testament would talk about sin in our lives. That when we give ourselves to habitual sins, When sin reigns in our lives unchecked, unfiltered, and unrepented of, unconfessed, unfought against, unresisted, when that occurs, it begins to take over. And we become more blind, so to speak. We become bound, and in, in a sense, we start grinding. We start serving the desires that we've been feeding all over and over and over again. So here you have Samson in this moment where he's grinding grain. He's pushing this millstone around in a circle, grinding grain for the Philistines, ultimately in service to Dagon. That's what habitual sin does in our lives. If we live our lives only doing what seems right to us and we are not considering the will of God and the ways of God, we wind up walking in a circle, stuck in our sin, If we keep feeding our flesh rather than denying our flesh, we find ourselves there. This is why Paul would offer up that warning in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. Don't you think that describes Samson? He's been feeding his flesh his entire life. And now he's starting to reap what he has sown. But here's the good news. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So the question we ask ourselves is, where are we sowing? Are we feeding the flesh by engaging in habitual sin, unchecked sin, refusing to resist sin? 
Or are we feeding the Spirit? Are we sowing the Spirit? Are we filling our minds up with the truth of God? Are we fixating our affections on the gospel of God? Are we considering God's grace and God's blessings towards us, not as things that we have earned or deserved, but things that he has freely given us by his grace? You see, when it comes to our relationship with God, do you understand that every good thing you have in your life, it is yours, not because you necessarily deserved it or you necessarily earned it. Every good gift, every blessing in your life is a gift of his grace. It comes to you as a result of his goodness, not necessarily your own. This is God's sovereign grace in our lives. And so we want to be aware of that so that we begin to feed the spirit and we begin to engage the things of God rather than sowing and feeding the flesh as Samson has done. And now we find Samson self-destructing. Check it out in verse 23. It says, now the Philistine leaders gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their god, Dagon. They rejoiced and said, our God has handed over our enemy, Samson, to us. And when the people saw him, they praised their God and said, our God has handed over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and who multiplied our dead. And when they were in good spirits, they said, bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from prison and he entertained them. They had him stand between the two Pillars. Now, this is a shocking moment because you have these Philistines who are worshiping Dagon, and now they are praising Dagon and giving Dagon credit for Samson's presence in their midst. But you and I know Samson was there not because Dagon did anything. Samson was there because the Lord was disciplining his servant, and his servant is in this moment not because Not because he was overpowered by the Philistines. He was in this situation because the Lord was handing him over to his desire, saying, if you want to be with the Philistines, fine, go serve them. Be their slave. Grind grain on behalf of Dagon, their God. And they begin to praise Dagon in this moment. And so there's a lot to be said about this. But just one thought at this time is to consider how, do you realize that habitual sin in our lives the more visible, the more pronounced, the, the more aggressive we pursue it in our lives, do you realize how much shame that heaps upon the reputation of the Lord? There's a real sense where you and I must not ever be at peace with anything that rendered the death of Jesus necessary. If you and I are ever at peace with something that rendered the death of Jesus necessary, there's a sense in which we are heaping dishonor upon the reputation of God. We are heaping dishonor upon the reputation of Jesus who would go to the cross to die for our sins, to die for the things that we have done wrong, to die for the ways in which our heart do not beat well in God's direction. So we don't want to heap dishonor upon the reputation of the Lord by being at peace with the very things that Jesus died to change. And so you have this terrible moment where everybody is mocking the Lord. Samson is entertaining them, but there is a note of hope being struck in verse 22. There's that strange statement, but his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. It's just a little note of hope, and we're reminded that there's still something divine about Samson's presence there. There's still some hope for Samson. That yes, Samson has been cast down, but he has not been ultimately cast off, and so We get this impression when you get into verse 26 that as Samson was grinding wheat on their behalf that he began to think a little bit. Perhaps he began to reflect upon his life. 
Perhaps he began to reflect upon how he got into that situation, all the choices he had been making. Perhaps he got to think about his failures. And so you get to verse 26, and listen to what we read. It says, Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so I can lean against them. So you get this impression that Samson has a plan. Verse 27, the temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. And then you get to verse 28, and you begin to see this moment. You, you, you begin to see Samson doing something you haven't seen him do this explicitly, this clearly in all the passages related to him. Because in verse 28, he begins to call out to the Lord. It's as though all of his self-reflection has led to this moment where he's crying out to the Lord. And listen to what he says. He says, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more with one act of vengeance. Let me pay back the Philistines from my two eyes. So you get to this moment, right? He's surrounded by his enemies, being mocked and humiliated. His eyes have been gouged out. He's standing between two pillars, and he takes that opportunity to pray. But he doesn't just pray a generic prayer in God's direction. He prays a specific prayer in light of who God is. Notice what he says. He addresses God as Yahweh Adonai, that is sovereign Lord, that is covenant God. He's praying not to God. He's praying to the God of Israel. He's praying to the God who has made promises to the people of Israel to deliver them, to be for them, to not be against them. He, he's praying to the Lord. He's promise-keeping Lord. So you, you hold that. He knows who he's talking to in this moment, but then look at his request. He says, please remember me. When you read in the Old Testament about saints and worshipers of Yahweh praying, Lord, would you remember me? That's the most spiritual, faith-filled prayer that anyone prays in the Old Testament. Because when you ask God to remember you, you're not asking God to remember you in the sense that he forgot about you. You're asking God to act upon the promises he has made to you. And so in this moment where Samson has hit rock bottom, he's crying out to the Lord and he says, remember me. He's basically saying, God, would you act on the basis of your promise to me, not my performance for you? Essentially, he's saying, look, I know I've blown it, and I don't deserve anything good from you, but remember me. Remember how you set me apart from birth to be a Nazarite, to belong to you. Remember how you said you were going to use me to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. He's saying, God, act according to your promise. Relate to me according to your grace. He's saying, God, don't treat me according to my performance. Don't relate to me according to how good I am, because if that were the case, Samson wouldn't stand a chance. So he's appealing to the faithfulness of God, the promises of God. When you get into 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, we're told in a... You see, he's faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, Paul in that verse is changing the accent of our relationship with God because you think your relationship with God is dependent upon your faith in him. Your relationship with God is dependent upon his faithfulness to you. And we're told in that moment that God cannot deny himself. That means that when God makes a promise, he intends to keep it. His character is one that will not change. And the promises he has made to deliver his people will never go away. So if you want to pray a prayer that is guaranteed to be answered, you pray prayers like, God, would you work in me for your namesake? God, would you do this in my life for your glory? 
God, would you remember me? Would you keep your promises? And pray in light of that allows you to pray. Praying in light of that allows you to pray with confidence. This is why when you come back to verse 28, what you have going down here is in the, for the first discernible time in Samson's story, Samson shows faith. The first time in his story, he exercises faith. And it is this moment in verse 28 is why when you jump into a passage like Hebrews chapter 11, Samson's name shows up. If you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is essentially, uh, it's, a lot of folks like to refer to it as the hall of faith. It's these men and women who live by faith and some things happened in their lives so that when the writer of Hebrews was putting that letter together, they said, okay, I'm going to list out all these people and, who were commended for their faith. And you might be surprised to know that Samson, this corrupt and flawed dude, his name actually shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to what it says. Hebrews 11 verse 32. And what more, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. And here's where I think Samson's story comes into play. Gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Now, one of the things about Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes that passage is misconstrued. Because as you come to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, you get into Hebrews chapter 12, that whole list of people referred to in chapter 11 is referred to as a great cloud of witnesses. And sometimes teachers of the Bible gives Christians the impression that they are a great cloud of witnesses who are somehow kind of in the stands and they're watching you and I live our lives and they're rooting for us. And they're cheering us on, live by faith, live by faith, exercise faith, exercise faith. And, and we get that impression that says, well, man, I'm never going to have as strong a faith as so-and-so or as strong as faith as so-and-so. And so you have this idea that these, these men and women are cheering us on as we live by faith. But when you read in Hebrews chapter 12 that there is a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, I want you to know that that great cloud of witnesses is not cheering you and I on. That great cloud of witnesses isn't testifying to your faith, saying, believe, believe, believe. That great cloud of witnesses is actually there to testify to the faithfulness of God. That each and every one of their stories bore witness to the faithfulness of God in their lives. That's what they are witnesses of. We can look to them and we can say, God has been so faithful to them, God will be faithful to me. And that's important because when you step into Samson's story, you're going to find in verse 28 a faith that is present, but it's not a faith that is perfect. His faith is far from perfect in this moment. I mean, notice what he prays for after he calls out to the Lord, please remember me. He then says, strengthen me. Strengthen me, God, just once more with one act of vengeance. Let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. There's a sense in which he's still thinking about himself, that he wants vengeance not for the sake of the people of Israel because they've been oppressed by the Philistines. He wants this to happen because he's been humiliated. So although Samson's faith is present in that moment, understand that it's not perfect. It's present, not perfect, and that is really good news for you and I because if we're honest with ourselves, the faith that we exercise in Jesus is far from perfect. But do you understand that God isn't looking for a perfect faith? He's looking for a present faith. This is why Jesus would say, faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. 
Mustard seed faith isn't impressive. Mustard seed faith is tiny, minuscule, imperfect faith, yet that's the faith that can move a mountain. Why? Not because the faith is quality, but because the object of the faith is quality. So we live by faith, by trusting in the faithfulness of God. We put the accent in our relationship with God on his faithfulness, his promises, his grace, not our faith, not our performance, not our goodness. There's a big difference in those two approaches to God. And so Samson's faith was far from perfect at the end of his life, but it was present. And I think because it was present there at the end where he's acknowledging the Lord and he's appealing to the promises of God, remember me, that's why he shows up in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's good news for people like us whose faith is far from perfect, but whose faith is present resting in the reality that God is faithful. Look at verse 30. Oh, not not there. Look at verse 29. It says, Samson, look what he does next. He prays this prayer, and then we begin to see him do something remarkable. It says, Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. You have Samson becoming a self-sacrificing person. And so I would ask you the question, do you think Samson in that moment died a monster? Or did he die as a new man? I believe he died as a new man. I believe that's a moment where Samson takes out a knife and he stabs the portrait of himself in this world. And what happened was he became new. He became different. But what's interesting about this is because in that moment, Samson begins to fulfill the purpose that God had laid out for him to fulfill. But do you see how it was fulfilled? The only way Samson could fulfill his purpose is if he died. And there's a reality that says the only way you and I can ever fulfill the purpose of God in our lives and for our lives is if we die. And I'm not talking about dying physically. I'm talking about dying to self. There's a reason Jesus would say to anyone who would follow him, he would say, if anyone's going to come after me, they must deny themselves, not indulge themselves, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. They must die to themselves if they're going to journey with me and live by faith. The only way you and I can fulfill the purpose that God has placed in our lives is if we die. Some self-sacrifice needs to take place. And again, I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually. I mean dying to ourselves. This is a picture that we see here in Samson's narrative. Samson, who did not fulfill his purpose until he died. Now, there's a reason why Samson is considered to be a type of Christ. There's lots of reasons why Samson is considered to be a type of Christ in the Bible. I mean, just think about some of the elements of his story as we, as we bring his story to a close. Samson was born in a miraculous fashion. Does that sound familiar? In a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus, which came about through miracle. It came about in a miraculous fashion. Samson, at one point, was handed over to his enemies by his own people. Does that sound familiar? You get to the story of the gospel, and you have Jesus being handed over to the Romans by his own people. 
Samson was betrayed by someone close to him for silver. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was betrayed by someone close to him for silver. This is what Judas did to Jesus. Samson was mocked and humiliated publicly. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was mocked and humiliated by the soldiers who were crucifying him to his cross, dying a wretched death, dying a shameful death, dying an embarrassing death. And when you look at Samson, what happens? He died with his arms stretched out, pushing two pillars apart to make the walls crumble. Does that sound familiar? As Jesus was being crucified on the cross, where was his arms, arms being stretched out wide? In Samson's story, when he died, what happened? He defeated his enemies. Does that sound familiar? You know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to defeat his enemies. He died to defeat sin. He died to defeat Satan. He died ultimately to defeat death. Samson, God's power was perfected in Samson's weakness in that moment. And I don't think we see that any more clear than when God's power was perfected in Jesus in his weakest moment when he was being crucified on the cross. There's a reason why Samson is a type of Christ. This is why when you're back to Hebrews chapter 11 and you read about all these stories of faith and we're told about this great cloud of witnesses, the writer then turns our attention. He says, okay, now I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What that is telling us is that you and I are to turn our attention towards Jesus. We read the story of Samson, and we look to Jesus. We read the story of Samson, and we run to Jesus, because Jesus is where the faithfulness of God is most fully displayed. Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises of God. This is why Paul would say that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. This is, again, why we are a Jesus people. We love Jesus. We trust Jesus. We worship Jesus. We serve Jesus. We follow Jesus because he has done for us what you and I could never do for ourselves. By his death, he defeated his enemies. And so we look to Jesus, we trust in Jesus. When you come to the end of Samson's story in verse 31, it says, then his brothers and all his father's family came down, carried him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of his father Manoah. So he judged Israel 20 years. What do you see happening there is that Samson's body is being brought back to where it belonged. Samson did not belong with the Philistines. Samson wasn't to be buried with the Philistines. Samson belonged with the people of God because he trusted the God of the people. And so his brothers come and they collect his corpse and they bring him back where he belonged. Samson did not die a monster. Samson died a new man. And I'm wondering, when you come to the end of your days in this world, will you die a monster? Or will you die a new man? Will you repent and believe the gospel? Will you confess your sins and trust in the Savior? Will you allow grace to do its work of changing you? Would you humble yourself before under the mighty hand of God, recognizing that, yeah, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? So many times we allow, we, we try to learn things the hard way. We don't have to learn everything the hard way. We don't have to wait until we're humiliated by discipline. We can humble ourselves now. We can confess our sins now. We can repent of our sin now. We can trust in Jesus now. We don't have to wait 
until humiliation comes our way and we're blinded and bound and start grinding in the service of sin. We don't have to wait till then. We can take time now to reflect. We can take time now to deny ourselves and die to ourselves and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And my hope and my prayer is that that would be the rhythm of every one of your lives, that when you reflect upon yourself, you would turn from yourself and trust in the Savior.